Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. Today my guest is Dr. Kristen Fellows. Dr. Fellows is a Gonstead diplomate and she practices in Egan, Minnesota, where she started her practice in 2004. She's been an instructor for the GMI seminars for many years, and she's the current secretary for the C.S. Gonstead Chiropractic Foundation Board of Directors. She studied under the mentorship of Dr. John Thatcher and later with Dr. Gary Pennebaker. If that wasn't enough, she also runs a Facebook group for Ladies of Gonstead. So today we're going to be talking with her about the journey of the female chiropractor. Now don't tune out thinking that this episode is for women only. Much to the contrary, Dr. Fellows has some wonderful insight that can benefit us all. So without any further ado, Dr. Kristen Fellows. Dr. Fellows, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You are very welcome. I uh, Could you start off by uh, telling us a little bit about how you got into chiropractic and more specifically how you got into Gonstead Chiropractic? Yeah. So when I was 10 years old, that is when I knew I wanted to be a chiropractor and it didn't change since then. So um, the way it started was I had this amazing climbing tree in my backyard. It had um, four different trunks that came from the same spot and jutted out in all different directions. And I used to climb up there with my friends and we would sit up there, you know, for an hour and just talk. And I was up there one day um, talking with one of my friends and I leaned against a branch that I thought would hold me and it didn't. And so I fell and um I've said in the past I fell 15 feet, but it, it really could have been more like 20 feet. And so it was a pretty good fall. And I landed face down in the dirt. And I remember being able to breathe in, but I couldn't breathe out at all. It was really scary. Um, so I had the wind knocked out of me and I immediately grabbed my lower back in pain. I could tell that there was something wrong. And um, I started getting headaches and stomach aches and the back pain persisted. And so my parents took me to a medical doctor and he checked me out and he said, well, it's either all in her head or she's just a kid looking for attention because she's fine. And um, thankfully, my parents knew that I wasn't that kind of kid. So instead, they decided to take me to a chiropractor and one of the things that I loved as a 10-year-old girl was finally there, you know, was someone who was validating what I was feeling because he explained subluxation to me. He he wasn't a Gonstead doc, but he explained subluxation. He explained the nervous system. He did a history exam and he took x-rays and he correlated my pain with what was happening in the nervous system. And so um, you know, finally someone was listening to me and it just, it made sense to me. So, um, you know, even before he started adjusting me, I was really just fascinated by, by the principle of it. I thought it was really interesting. Um, but then shortly after he started adjusting me, my headaches went away, my stomach aches went away and my back pain got better. And so then I was even more excited. Um, and what I, I also saw looking back was that the chronic strep throat that I had had about four times every single year from the time I was a little kid never came back after I started getting adjusted. So um, that was also really exciting for me. So my whole body was just working better. And I remember even doing a science project in fourth grade on 
it was on the skeletal system, you know, so I didn't 100% get that it was more about the nervous system than the skeletal system, but I was just really excited about chiropractic at that point. So um, I continued to get adjusted on a regular basis. So he continued to check me all the way through high school. And then I went away um, for college. And at under, when I was an undergrad, I was a CA for a chiropractor who was across the street from the house that I lived in. And then when I would go home on the weekends or on Christmas break, I had another chiropractor in my hometown, not the gentleman who was adjusting me, but um, I was talking with my mom and she thought it might be a good idea to find a female chiropractor to learn from, which turned out to be um, life-changing for me. So she also was not a Gonsta doc. But um, she actually used, she started out as a Gonstead doc and then her management company swayed her away from doing Gonstead and she took down all her feeder rooms and started doing Flying 7, which is definitely a downer. But um, I still ended up being led to Gonstead through her clinic. So, um, and she gave me such an amazing opportunity. So she, you know, again, was a female doc. She had three kids, but she certified me to do everything in her clinic except marking x-rays and adjusting patients. So she was still taking full spine x-rays. And so I got certified to take full spine x-rays. And then she taught me, of course, how to develop them. I was doing all of the new patient history taking, all of the new patient exams, the progress exams, all of the patient education from day one through four. She was a singer doc. She worked with David Singer. So it was very structured. I was explaining subluxation to people, relief versus corrective care. I was selling one-year plans. And again, this is all just when I was an undergrad before I even set foot in chiropractic school. And then I assisted with in-house new patient workshops, did reactivation phone calls. Um, I observed, you know, just the day-to-day operations, how to run a staff meeting. And I was a CA up at the front desk as well. Um, So I did all the scheduling and phone calls and helped with screenings. So um, I wrote her a letter when I graduated from chiropractic school, just, you know, really realizing at that point the amazing opportunity she gave me because that set me up for success when I eventually started my own practice. But the reason I got led to Gonstead Chiropractic through her clinic was because Dr. Chad Pedersen, I don't know if you know him, um, he is a a Gonstead doc in Minnesota. He was doing his preceptorship there. And so, you know, again, she was in Gonstead, but he was there to learn the business side of things from her before he opened his own practice. And so whenever I would come home on the weekends and on breaks and during the summer, he and I would hang out and we got to be good friends. And he actually gave me my first Gonstead adjustment. And I could tell from his analysis, you know, and and just the specificity of his contact that it was different, but I didn't know a lot about it. Um, And then at that point, he just said, hey, you know, I know you're about to start chiropractic school. When you go there, you should really check out the Gonstead Club. So um, I took that advice. I valued his opinion and I ran with it. And so I, I started at Northwestern and this was in 1999. Uh, when I started. And on the first day of being in school there, they had us all in the auditorium and they said, we're going to give you a blank sheet of paper and we want you to write down what your greatest fear is right now in starting chiropractic school. And I still remember my greatest fear was that I would not be able to adjust the spine. And so that was the motivating force (laughs) that I had, um, along with Dr. Patterson's recommendation to go check out the Gonstead Club. 
And so like a lot of other, other Gonsta docs, I went, you know, to that first club meeting. I was uh, in my first trimester. I went right away. And, and what I found is that it just made sense. You know, you hear that over and over from other Gonsta docs. I went and it just made sense. They went over, you know, the analysis and you had a step-by-step protocol of what to do when that patient walks in your door. And I really loved that. And it, it helped me, you know, feel more secure with where I was headed. Um, there was there was less guesswork. And so I continued to go to club and started going to seminars. I went both to Gonstead seminars and to GMI seminars. Um, I didn't pick one or the other at that point. And, and then in my first trimester, I was in two car accidents a month apart. And I started having migraines and I had lower back pain. That was so bad I couldn't sit in class. So I was kneeling um, in the back of the, the classroom uh, trying to, to get my schoolwork done. It was getting really hard to study with the migraines. And the intern who was assigned to me to be adjusting me was just making me worse. Um, you know, it wasn't a Gonstead intern either. It was someone who was, um, he was actually really confused and, and was about to leave school at, in his like eighth trimester. So I asked some of the upper trimester students in club who I should go see. So I said, um, you know, I need someone who can help me. So who's the best? Who do I go to? And they said, well, actually, there is this guy in St. Paul, and he teaches us on Thursday nights, and his name is Dr. John Thatcher. And they said, why don't you come along with us, and we'll have him check you out. So I was able to go. Um, to Dr. Thatcher's clinic in in that first trimester, and he checked me, and he adjusted one bone, and that was my L2. And what what he didn't know is I had always had a horrible time with menstrual cramps um, and with with irregularity. So I was at home for two days out of every month with really, really bad cramps. I had pain going down into my anterior thigh so bad that I would just have to crawl from my bed into the bathroom because it hurt so much even just to walk. And after he adjusted my L2, I I hadn't had my cycle in several months, and I got it 30 minutes after the L2 adjustment, which I thought was probably not a coincidence. And I, ever since that day, have never had an issue with menstrual cramps, and I have been like clockwork ever since, and I credit him with the fact that I was able to get pregnant on my first try with all three babies that I had. So, um, so that was a, that was a pretty, um, pivotal experience for me. You know, I had already decided that this Gonstead thing was, was a really good direction to go in. But after that happened, I could not deny that I needed to learn this. And that was a point where I would say that my, my motivation changed from fear to more of a sense of duty, um, because now I knew that Gonstead was was better. You know, I'd been getting adjusted ever since I was ten, and I had, and all those things got better. My headaches, my stomach aches, my chronic strep throat, but the menstrual stuff never changed. That was always really bad, even though I was getting adjusted on a regular basis. So I knew that that there was something to this work. Um, so I knew I had to keep learning it because I had this sense of duty for my future patients, you know, um, I knew that, that I had to do what was best so that I could help them. And so then I started getting invited back to Dr. Thatcher's Thursday night classes, which was, um, 
I was really very fortunate to be able to start those classes in my first trimester because that wasn't something that was very usual. But um, that was some good that came out of those car accidents because I was able to get started with, with him right away. So he would teach us from 8 to midnight every Thursday night in the basement of his clinic. And he would go over tough cases, um, you know, go over films with us. He would take our hand and his hand and go, you know, one-on-one with our adjusting. And we just learned so much invaluable information there. Um, Dr. Gary Pennebaker was right alongside of us learning from Dr. Thatcher as well. And then um, when we lost Dr. Thatcher back in 2005, Dr. Pennebaker took over and he continued to teach us after we were in practice um, until we lost him in, in 2014. Um, so those those years of learning with that that small group of other Gonstead students in that clinic, um, it was some of the best times in my life. There was there was so much that I learned there um, that I owe to both of those men in how I practice today. Yeah, that's amazing. Your story. There's so many. Um, I guess with that Thatcher adjustment, there's so many uh, paradigm busters there because first of all, as an L two, we don't usually think of those. Right. Um, <laughs> You don't hear a lot of chiropractors bragging about that. Yep. Um, you've got, um, it probably wasn't just the fact that he adjusted the right bone, but I'm sure it was all of his years of experience to adjust it correctly. Correct. Also the difference. Um, yeah. I had a similar experience at LACC with um, Dr. Gold doing something similar on me. And once I felt it, it's like, once you feel it, you yeah. know there's something you can't go back. And That's it, it right. That way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think also the other important thing is um, the mentorship angle. It really seems like, the more I talk to people on this podcast, the different guests I have, it always comes around to mentorship. A lot of people, mentorship just makes the learning curve so so much faster that you actually have mm-hmm. a chance. Otherwise, the learning is so slow and having great mentors. And I actually learned from somebody who learned from Dr. Thatcher, and that's why I first learned of Dr. Thatcher. I thought, oh. man, I was turning out some great chiropractors. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, well, today... We want to talk about the journey of the female chiropractor. <laughs> yes. um, I don't think it's any mystery that within Gonstead, we don't have as many women as we have men. And yet mm-hmm. most people, their student population is more female than it is male. And to right. me, the idea that there are women who are going to school and taking out the loans and putting in the time and even graduating only to never practice, to me, mm-hmm. that's absolutely tragic. Yes, um, I agree. So I think that there's got to be something we can do to bring people along. And one thing we talk about here all the time around here is that results make a difference. And when it comes to building a practice, results may not be the whole thing. Like there's other things you need to know, but results give you such a huge boost and such an mm-hmm. advantage. When you can do that, the other things can kind of fall into place. And so um, I just want to talk to you about, first off, why do you think it is that women seem to have a more difficult time finding success in chiropractic and even in Gonstead than perhaps men do? I think a big part of that is when we graduate from chiropractic school, we hear our clocks ticking. (laughs) Um, You know, most of us are are getting up there in our our mid mid to late 20s. And, you know, we're thinking about how many years we have left to have babies. And that's something that the guys don't have to worry about. And so a lot of us start having babies shortly after we get out of school and are trying to balance that with those early years and building our practice. Um, and that, it really makes it extra hard. It puts a, a big wrench in things. And every time I had a baby, I saw my practice take a dive and then I'd have to work really hard, build it back up. 
Um, you know, so it does make for a slower start. It's like two steps forward, one step back. And um, I, I also met my husband very shortly after I started my practice. And we were engaged not too long after we met and then married three months after we were engaged. And it was just such a whirlwind, you know, and I was still really, really early on in trying to build that practice up. Um, you know, so there were just so many things going on personally for me um, that coincided with the start of practice that it, it makes it just a lot to handle and a lot to juggle. And I, I wasn't able to 100% just focus on the practice. Yeah, that's an aspect that um, I think a lot of people experience, but a lot of people don't anticipate. Is yes. That your personal life plays a big role in what you can and can't do, and mm -hmm. and and it, it really does affect it. And so keeping your personal life, um, I don't even know what word to use, orderly. Yes. <laughs> those kind of things play a part because you could have a practice go under just because you were playing loose and free on the personal side, thinking that the two weren't related. And right. Absolutely they, they can't be taken apart. Um, yeah. It's yeah. one of the reasons I, I talk with women too about how important it is to feed your marriage. Um, you know, you're, I, I don't think it's, it's easy to stay in practice if your marriage isn't going well. And so that's, it's just such an important piece. Yeah. And, and I see what you're saying on the baby side as well, because it, like with my wife, we had to plan when we were going to have our children based on where she was in her career. So she had one yes. child and another one between jobs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we knew there was going to be a gap and she's like, if we want to have a second child, this is the only time we can. Once I start practicing, I really can't be gone. Right. So, I planned mine around my marketing calendar. <laughs> and thankfully, like I said, we got pregnant on the first try every time. So we just looked at the marketing calendar. That would be convenient. Let's have a baby. Boom. <laughs> so yeah, it worked out. Target, you could end up in a lot of trouble. Yes. Um, so I, I, did, I did actually miscalculate one of them. I purposely did not want my daughter to be a Christmas baby. And I miscounted by a month. And she was born on December 23rd. So. <laughs> I oopsed on that one. <laughs> uh, and then what flows into that is then after you have those babies, now you're still a doctor, but you're also expected to be a mother as well. And then yes. it's different that way. So like that's the wife, hardest part. That's the by far the hardest part. That first year, and especially nursing, I think throws a bigger wrench in all of it than anything else. Nursing is such a hard part. Um, but even even before that, I should say a lot of the gals I talked to, and in the way I was thinking was, I can do it all. It's no it's no big deal. I don't have to plan. I don't have to have strategies. I can just work and have babies. And you don't understand the reality and, until it hits. And so you don't think about the fact that you're going to be up early on every two or three hours feeding that baby. And it seems like by the time you get them fed, if they're a lazy feeder, um, you know, you finally get yourself back to sleep and then boom, it's time to get up and feed them again. And now you wake up in the morning and you're supposed to go into your practice and be alert, you know, and, and it's a physical job and you need to be thinking fast on your feet and look presentable, look professional. <laughs> and so one of the things that I did is, um, 
early on, I was starting seeing patients at 7.30 in the morning. And after having babies, it, it did not take long after having my first baby to decide that that was completely ridiculous. There was no reason I needed to be doing that. And so ever since then, I start my day in the clinic at 9.30 in the morning. And I have built a successful practice doing it that way. So you don't have to be open in the morning. My most stressful time of the day is just getting all my kids fed and out the door to school. Um, you know, even though I'm not nursing anymore, that's a, that's a, there's a lot that happens in my house, you know, between seven and nine o'clock in the morning. And um, it's important for me to try to be a part of that and not put it all on my husband either. But starting at 930 has worked really well for me. And I do justify that with the fact that I actually work really late in the clinic three nights a week. And so if I'm working late three nights a week, there's no reason I need to be open really early in the morning. And that has just worked very, very well for me. Yeah, I think that's, that's great. Yeah, I kind of went through a similar kind of evolution of thinking that there were certain demands on me. And then after doing it, going, I can't sustain this. Yeah. I, I can actually sustain. Yeah, you actually get to choose how you live your life. <laughs> and I'm not a morning person anyway. Um, you know, one of my favorite quotes says that before 10 o'clock in the morning, people shouldn't talk. They should just hug because waking up is really hard. And I, I kind of function that way. So 930 is plenty early for me. And then I, I, my other days when I work late, I actually don't start in the clinic until about three o'clock in the afternoon. And I structured it that way. So I could be at home with my babies. And while they were young, I could be home with them during the day. And then, you know, I would leave and go to the clinic. And then a lot of my clinic working hours were actually while my kids were in bed. And they had, you know, their daddy time. My husband um, works from home. And so it, it works really, really well for us. And I figure, you know, I might as well be be working while they're in bed. And so there are nights where I am at the clinic until, you know, 11, um, 11.30 at night after seeing patients till about 8.30. I'll see a new patient and then I'll mark up films and, um, you know, do all sorts of things. So I, I try to use that time really wisely. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the individual areas where there are challenges. So let's start with techniques. I think this is a big one. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, in general. Women are generally shorter than men. Yep. <laughs> yes, I'm 5'2". <five> <laughs> yeah. I know tall women and I know short men, but in right. general. In general, uh, we're shorter. I've always felt like, the le- to me, being taller and having leverage gives me an advantage. But at the same time, the tables really should be set to your height. Yes. And if done correctly, we should all have about the same leverage. Right. So yes. Are there any particular areas where you feel like your technique, you had to find a way to change your technique in order to make it work for you because doing it the way the guys did it wasn't going to work? Yes. Um, So equipment is huge. And, um, you know, I got the chair as short as possible and I got the pelvic bench as short as possible. I don't think you could get them any lower than what I have them. And um, sometimes my short chair is a little bit of a problem. You know, there are no arms on it. And so for someone who has lower back pain, it is a little harder for them to get out of it. Um, or for really tall guys, I have to say, you know, sit down carefully because so they don't thud because it's such a short chair. Um, but I explain, you know, I need this so that, you know, I can adjust, you know, tall people or people with a long torso and, and do a good job. Um, I, 
even with the shortest chair, I have one patient, he's tall and he has a really long torso. And so I have to pull my um, knee chest table behind the pelvic bench and stand on the kneeling part of my knee chest so that I can get to his upper cervicals to motion palpate them and to adjust up there. Um, so that's one thing that I've had to do. Um, and then I also have um, some custom made sort of um, risers on each side of my high-low. So my husband was wonderful enough to cut some wood in the shape, that kind of jagged shape right around the high-low table. So I've got these platforms on each side of my high-low and they fit right against the high-low like a puzzle. Um, how many inches are they? They're probably at least, I would say maybe eight inches. So I'm 5'2 and that makes me about 5'10". Um, when I stand on them. And then he had them covered in the carpeting to match the carpet in my room. So it, it looks good. And then we have some heavy duty Velcro on the bottom so they don't slip. And that allows me to get good leverage on someone, you know, especially who's got a really big tummy. So, um, so that I can get up and over them. And that, when I, when I did that, that made such a big difference in being able to adjust people well. Um, so I think that's essential. I think somebody should get in the business of making those things and anybody who's short needs to have them. Um, cause they, they really, really did help. But there are times where, um, you know, just the way that I, that my body is positioned is, is probably a little different. Um, I, I had one woman who's, I couldn't get her EX ilium any other way except to do it on the pelvic bench to do it side posture, but she was about 350 pounds and, you know, pretty high up off the bench. Um, and even with my short bench, she said, I feel like you're climbing me. And I said, I am, <laughs> you know, but, but I could get the bone to move, but it's like, I'm laying on top of people some of the time. Um, there's just no other way to do it. And so you just have to be comfortable with getting kind of up close and personal sometimes. And that's, that's how it works. Um, I can't muscle things in maybe like, like some people do, but that's not good technique anyway. Right. I mean, no, nobody should be muscling it in. So making sure the patient's in, you know, great position, um, making sure that they are relaxed so that my contact is light so that I'm not causing them to tense up. Um, you know, feeling the pulse of the patient we talk about all the time, you know, getting um, that impulse in right at the right time is so crucial. And then making sure that I've got the, the right line of drive and some good speed. Um, you know, so just the things that we all need to pay attention to um, as doctors, but, um, more so because I, I am not going to be able to use the muscle to, you know, take any of that slack. Yeah. I've always felt like that's, that's the one advantage for women. It might be the only advantage, but it's the one advantage is that if you <laughs> don't have the strength, then you already know you need to have finesse and the that's guys right. who have strength often fail to develop the finesse because they don't think they need to, and they don't understand yeah. that really the best adjustment is going to be as much finesse and as little strength as possible getting mm -hmm. that much hard but it does give an advantage that way i think for women because if you take that off the table then you know at the beginning it's got to be finesse i gotta right. find a coax that thing in mm -hmm. and uh, i've tried not to look at it really as a detriment i mean there are definite advantages to having small fingers you know so um 
yes, you know, if I am down on T2 in the chair, my thumb is resting more on the SCM, you know, versus on the ramus of the jaw, Um, you know, but that still works. But having small fingers, I can get really specific on like a a C3, you know, that's, that's tiny and deeper in there. And so I, I don't try to look at my size as a detriment, but see that, you know, there are a lot of, of good things about having small hands sometimes too. Yeah, especially if you get like a C7 and a T1 that are really crowding each other out. Yes. <laughs> get in there and lift it up. My hands aren't that big, but there are times when I feel like they're like baseball gloves. Yeah. Just, <laughs> I'm the one I want to be on. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, I guess the other one would be um, cer- cervical chair. I know kind of how we were t- uh, people were often taught, but even the way I do it, I have no hesitation in bringing a head back and putting it on my chest and mm-hmm. using my chest maneuver and control mm-hmm. um, but I, I I thought many times before in teaching other people if I was a woman I don't think I'd be nearly as quick to do that as I, <laughs> I um I was I was taught by some women who just said you know what don't worry about it just just if you ignore it they ignore it and for the most part that's true I had I had one comment one day you know in in my um 18 years of practice, but that's, that's it. You know, maybe people were thinking something, but only one person ever actually said anything. Um, so he asked if we should dim the lights and I just <laughs> was like, Oh my goodness. There's there's, yeah. There's always going to be those outliers, but for the most part, I just ignore it. And I, I just, you know, there've been times though where I can tell the guy is actually hesitant and I'll have to say, it's okay go ahead and lay your head against my chest, you know? And so I think the, the guys are actually trying to be respectful and, and it's maybe making them a little uncomfortable and they just need me to say, it's okay. Just go ahead and let's rest your head back against my chest. And so, um, you know, then it's, it's not a big deal. But I think that's another area where the chair and all of your equipment placing ha- needs, to, needs to be right. Yes. Because if they are at the right height, where they hit you should be up high enough that it's actually not an issue. Right. If it's an issue, you might need to alter your equipment or do something to get the right height. Yes. Or wear undergarments that smush you down a little bit. <laughs> so you're a little flatter on top. <laughs> All of that helps. Sometimes it, it means bringing the, the head more um, in the center of your chest as opposed to a little bit to the side. It just, it just kind of depends. But you get a feel for where, you know, you feel like their head is the most stable. And it has to do with their height, too. You know, how, how long of a torso they have, where their head lands on you. And so it's a little bit different, actually, with each patient. And I just get a feel for it. And I'll, I'll put their head in a couple different positions on my chest sometimes until I feel like, okay, now I've got him. His head's not bobbing around. Yeah. So it is something we think about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um. Let me think. What was the other? Oh, I had a question. I can't think of what it was now. Um, oh, I know what it was. One of the, I think to me, it was always one of the most condescending things I've ever heard is that people would tell the girls in the class, well, you, you could just do pediatrics. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I have a story with that. <laughs> I see a lot of kids and I tell students all the time, it takes way more skill to adjust kids than it does adults. It does. I actually was looking into an associateship until I found out that that doctor had only planned on me seeing kids in the practice. And I didn't even have a door on my adjusting room in the space that was being newly built out 
for us. And my adjusting room, unlike the other two ducks, didn't even have a door on it. There were no feeder rooms. It was tiny. And I was told I would just be adjusting kids. And I thought, this is not my vision. And that's when I decided to go out on my own. And I actually, I will tell you, so many people I've met have assumed that I have a pediatric focus in my practice because I'm a woman. And what I found is that having young kids at home, when my kids were a baby and a toddler, and now, you know, I've got three, actually, the last thing I wanted to do was to go to my clinic and see a bunch of kids. And in in some ways, I feel bad saying that. But, you know, being a mom is so 100% when you're at home and you're so on demand with those kids. And actually going to the clinic was like a really peaceful time in my day because I did not focus on having a lot of kids in my practice. Yeah. So it's it's very different than what people assume. Yeah. Um, and I think I, that's another area. My wife and I have talked about this some. That's another area where... Um, for me, it's actually a little bit of a detriment, probably easier for you. And I've always told people when, when I'm adjusting a pregnant woman or a child, they put up with me. <laughs> I think that they would feel a lot more comfortable if it was a woman coming. Cause my wife was like, you know, people just have this perception that, Oh, it's, it's a woman. She's not going to hurt you. And yeah. It works great for her in dentistry. <laughs> but they also have a perception of you can't do it. I can't tell you how many men have said, well, one said, well, what's a little girl like you going to do to adjust a big guy like me? And I mean, <laughs> so much, especially when I was young. Now I'm getting some gray hairs, so that's helping. But they they do. They just assume you're not going to be able to move their bones. But I will tell you, those are some of the most fun first adjustments I've ever had. Just <laughs> the look on their face when you bring it, and then they never question you again. That's awesome. Yeah. Especially uh, like when you can get the leverage. Like that's why we have the knee chest table. That's why we mm -hmm. have when you can get the leverage and then get them to relax. Yep. It doesn't take that much strength. So no. really, I think a child could do it if you could teach them. Absolutely. Like <laughs> yeah. But you're right. They do think, oh, you're not going to hurt me. That there is definitely that. Yeah. But you're right. It's a double edged sword. It's do you want the you can't hurt me or the you can't move me? Right. Um, <laughs> um and then um so then another area that we get into is the business side of things. Um yes. I told my wife I was gonna be talking to you, and my wife said, I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> about business oh yeah there's a lot I could talk about there as far as like starting a business or um the difference in functioning in business day to day well her questions were she said I want to know if a female chiropractor has to deal with the same stigmas that I do as a female dentist oh I would love to hear what what she deals with like, um, well, I don't know dentist dental is very high on staff so I don't know if you have a lot of staff in your office I have um three CAs, well, an office manager, two CAs, a business operations manager, a massage therapist, and two other chiropractors with me. I'm assuming that they, that group is probably predominantly female. Yes. Two of them are men. Okay. So my wife's thing is she said in dental, it's usually mm -hmm. assistants, all those kind of people, all female. Uh -huh. she said, There's often a difficulty when you're the female boss. Oh. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but you're just a woman like me, right? And so then they, they do these different things. And, she, and she, she always says, it's not the same for you. And she's absolutely right. I always said when I had a bunch of staff, it's not mm -hmm. the same because mm -hmm. they treat men differently than women. And so it's, it's this unspoken thing 
that creates problems. And then I, my wife is on some uh, closed Facebook groups with um, a bunch of mommy dentists. Uh huh. <laughs> I have. I, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, they just a lot of them have the same problems, and mm-hmm. so they kind of um, are like, "Well, my staff's doing this to me now. My staff's doing that." And there's jealousy, and there's this, and there's that, and they're like, "How do you prevent that?" When it's like, "Well, go to school then and be me." <laughs> like, <laughs> I actually, um, it's funny because I I hear my colleagues talk about they call them staff infections, you know, problems with staff all the time. I have to tell you. I could not be more blessed with the team that I have. I mean, I just, I am thankful every day. We have zero drama. I actually think I should probably teach a pit class sometime on how to run a clinic with no drama. Um, The staff that I have is so amazing. And they've, you know what, they've all come to me by association. So these are not people who answered an ad. These are people who know someone that I know, and that is how we hire. And it has made the biggest difference. Um, The two other doctors who work for me, and now one of them bought into my practice, they both go to the same church that I go to. Um, And so we're we're all hearing the same convicting sermons every week on how to be a decent person, which maybe helps, Um, you know, but Um, we really have no drama and we have focused so highly on getting to know each other's personalities. And I cannot tell you how valuable that has been because there have been times where we've been frustrated about the way that, you know, the other person is behaving, but then we go back to, oh, well, I understand why she's acting that way. Her, you know, core motivator is this, and then we can have grace. And it's like this beautiful thing. Dr. Megan, who um, worked for me and then bought into the practice, she and I have had some differences in opinion. And we sit down, I'm not kidding, in a room together, we lock the door, we start praying out loud and thanking God for each other's unique gifts. And then by the end of it, we're like, we don't even need to talk. I love you. And we're hugging. And like, there's this, <laughs> there's this whole like female tenderhearted side of things. Um, the women who I hire are all very hardworking, but they all have these great, big, huge hearts and really peaceful personalities. And that has made all the difference. Um, and the men who I work with too are the kind of guys who I can just be so upfront with. We can just lay everything out on the line talk through it. Not, you know, not a big deal. Guys are pretty low drama in general. Um, and they have been very honoring to me as their boss too. So I honestly could not ask for a better team. And then we talk a lot about, um, you know, each person's workplace needs. So we, um, at least quarterly review each staff member's top three workplace needs, and they're all so different. And then we keep them posted in the dark room so that we can keep that in the forefront of our mind at all times. So yeah. we we deal a lot with with like heart issues. I think I've cried and hugged every person who works for me. You know, we've cried together and I stay after the shift and I talk with them about how their night went out, you know, in the front desk area because it could seem really easy to me back in my adjusting room. And they're like, oh my gosh, it was so crazy out here. And sometimes, you know, they've been in tears or something. And I just sit and listen to them and hear them out. And, um, you know, we've really bonded in that way. And sometimes we just talk and laugh, you know, before we say goodbye and um you know just just share each other share with each other on a personal level and it really feels like a family yeah i think those are all great principles for hiring i we found the same thing that hiring people you know or people yeah um, makes a big difference over just answering an ad Um, yeah and my wife has worked many different places she's worked in texas she's worked in washington she's worked in california um Mm -hmm. 
it's, and she's she's been on good teams and bad teams and it's just kind of like the uh the science of how do you create a good team yeah um, a lot of it is just personalities matching and and when you can get good at i think it begins with knowing who you are absolutely then you can start to build a team around who you are yep. whereas like if i just got to collect these people off the street and make this work <laughs> that's gonna be tough i i have a i'm very intuitive too so i can sit down with someone um intuitive almost to the point where I would say it's scary sometimes I can sit down with someone and I'm almost instantly I feel like I know a lot about them I get a a really strong indication of of who they are as a person and that has been really beneficial in interviewing someone um I I get really a a sense of who someone is pretty easily well I haven't that's been helpful I haven't seen your well I haven't been to your office but I've seen pictures of your office Mm -hmm. Um, your office is beautiful thank Um, you um, I also think what's your office, and this is how it should be. Your office totally portrays your personality. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's like this extension of you. And I think that that also probably for patients and for employees is kind of an inviting thing to have that. And I think that that's something that people, if they're building an office, should really think about is to make your um, office an extension of you. Absolutely. I love being surrounded by pretty things (laughs) because it makes me just feel happy and, you know, happy in my environment. And then I I can get in like that Zen state that you need to be in when you're adjusting someone and checking someone. And one of the things I've talked with some of the women about in chiropractic is I don't want to be high volume, low cost. Early on, I some of my um, some of the guys I graduated with were seeing, you know, 400 people a week, and they said, "Chris, you can do this too." And I said. I don't want to do that. (laughs) I said, I would rather see somewhere between 150 and 200 people a week and do just a really good job um, and charge more for that. And so that, that is what I do. And I feel like if my office looks nice, it just sets the tone and it's going to draw people in who can afford me. One of the things that Dr. Pennebaker told us once is he said, don't, just give everything away because you have a big heart. Be really careful that he said the people who can afford you need you too. And that was, that was really valuable information to get. And my husband helped, um, helped me guard against that early on too. Um, he would say, you know, don't, don't keep seeing people for free. Don't keep giving it away. You know, people need to, to pay and value for what you're giving them. So I, I've tried to set the tone of the office that way too. Yeah, I think that's an important issue for men and women alike is that it's very easy for us to undervalue ourselves. Yes. Mm-hmm. And to have somebody, like in your case, your husband, mm-hmm. remind you, this is what you're really worth. Yeah, <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, yes. Really and and as Gonsta Docs, we, we're, we take so much time and we do a really good job, you know? I could take you know, a minute and a half and go through people really fast and be home for dinner on time every night. But I choose to do really careful work. I'm very thorough. Um, You know, I got, I was going through um, patients the other night and I had a guy just in my regular schedule. He came in and he's like, so I just fell 25 feet. Um, I was, you know, climbing this cliff and, you know, I can hardly move my neck. And, you know, he wanted me to adjust him on the spot. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm not touching you. I said, you know, I'm not done till 10 o'clock at night, but I need you to come back at 10 o'clock tonight. We're going to take new films and we're going to take some flexion extensions as well. And I'm going to re-examine you. And then I'll see if I feel like we should be adjusting you. So um, it meant I got home, you know, really late that night. But, you know, we 
we do a really good job for our patients and we should pay, be paid well for that. Yeah. And that's a hard thing too, is I'm noticing more and more um, patients wanting to dictate their care based on what they think chiropractic is Mm -hmm. hard for us sometimes because we're like, no, we're not like that. We don't do that. Yeah. Yep. These other parts and know that we're doing the right thing and not just carpet bombing as I call it, hammering away. Yes. (laughs) There have been times where I said, this might not be the clinic for you. So I'm okay with that. You know, I practice the way that I practice. And part of that I learned from Dr. Thatcher. When I was interning for him, um, he would be running two hours behind schedule, first of all, because he went so slow because he was not going to cut any corners. And then he would walk out his back door and go to a sit-down lunch at the Good Earth. And I would call him and I would be like, Doc, you are almost three hours behind. He'd say, yeah, yeah, I know. I, you know, I'll leave here pretty soon. And then he'd waltz in the door, um, start clipping his fingernails really slow. And by the time he got back to his afternoon patients, he was three hours behind schedule. And, um, you know, I do have a tendency sometimes to get behind, but I've trained my patients to call the clinic before they leave home or before they leave work and say, is she running late? What time should I really be there? Because I always tell people, you know, I might not be the one who gets you in and out fast every single day. Sometimes, yes, I'm running on time. But if someone throws a curveball my way and I need to figure them out in that moment, I'm going to make sure they walked out of here better than they walked into here. And it means that sometimes I'm going to get behind schedule. So um, if that doesn't work for you, I, I might not be your chiropractor. So I just let them know that right off the bat, that that is just how I practice. But almost always they say, I am so glad that if that were me, you would have taken the time. So, um, you know, certain people will stick with you and then you build a practice on people who value the way that you practice. Yep. And then they'll refer their friends who. Yes. 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 I I, I do the thing where I don't really advertise. And then people are like, how come you don't advertise? I didn't know you were here. (laughs) Walking off the street. Like I like the friends of the friends of the people I've got. They're the best ones for sure. So it's like, I built this up for a certain way on purpose. I don't just want people walking in the door because then I got to explain what I'm doing and all this stuff. I can have my patients do that for me. That's right. I just had a, I just had a case where um, this young girl came in and she had crazy anxiety. You know, waking her parents up several times a night, um, and she, you know, just very high strung. And then she started throwing up, like projectile vomiting, after she got hit in the side of the face with a ball. And I, I had her in, and um, you know, took some some X rays. We did flexion extensions. I found that she had an AS occiput and all the anxiety, they were like, she is a totally different kid, you know, and not throwing up. And um, I fixed her jaw too. And that might've also been a part of it. But then the next um, couple weeks later, after they saw that it was, you know, sustained, it was, she was continuing to be a totally different kid. They referred in their neighbor and he was having, you know, the same issue. Um, and then, and then another referral, same issue, you know, in, in another case, it was um, the acid reflux with an, an AI um, atlas. It was an AIR I believe, putting pressure on the left vagus. Um, but it, it is, it, you don't have to explain it then because sometimes I'll say, you know, does it, does it sound crazy to you that I'm going to push on this bone and, um, it, you know, your acid reflux will not be an issue anymore? Does that sound crazy? But when you have referrals, then they've already had it explained. They already, you know, have someone who they trust, you know, verifying that, yeah, this was the only thing that made a difference. Yeah. Then instead of sounding crazy, they're like, no, that's what I expect. Now get yeah. <laughs> right. Let's do this. <laughs> yep. So I know that like at the uh, extravaganza, we have like women's panels. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> <that's> all- <laughs> um, yes. 
secret code (laughs) (laughs) majorly that seems to come up in those where you feel like there's an area where we could really be helping the female students along to help them be more successful in practice and and what we could really be doing to kind of ensure that they have the support they need? You know, I would say the biggest thing that comes up is how to navigate pregnancy and maternity leave as a female doc. That's really the thing, you know, like I said before, that throws the biggest wrench in all of this. Um, There are just so many, so many different voices out there. And there are even other women who Um, I had a woman call me up a couple months ago and she said, so I have this coach and she told me she had a baby and she only needed to take off two weeks. Does that sound right? That you only need a two week maternity leave? And I felt so bad for her. And I said, no, like that's, that's not necessarily the case, probably for the great majority of women. Two weeks is nowhere near enough time um, for so many reasons. Your body is still recovering. um, You know, there are things going on in your body that just make it not pleasant to be um, up and on your feet and practicing. And you're nursing a baby. You're trying to establish, you know, breastfeeding and a good latch and all of those things. And it's such a precious time with your baby um, that I, I just don't think that women are going to look back and be glad that they only took two weeks. You know, I took six weeks and even that was really hard. And so that's the biggest thing that comes up. And I, you know, I'm I'm glad that you're asking this question. I, I sometimes have wondered, are are male chiropractors hesitant to hire a female doc because, you know, legitimately they're they're looking at this going, well, she's probably going to get pregnant and go on maternity leave, and what does that mean for my practice? And am I going to lose money? And is it really still a value to have a female doc in my practice, or is it going to be, you know, not beneficial for me? And and I would say with the right female doc, it can definitely be a benefit because there are certain patients who they want a female chiropractor and you're going to have more new patients coming in your door who otherwise may not have come in your door unless you had a female chiropractor there because they only want to see a female doc. Um, it goes, it goes the other way too. You know, I have a a friend from church and her husband wanted to come in as a new patient. He was going to come in and see me, but then he decided he wasn't really comfortable with coming in to see me. Um, you know, just that male female thing. And so he'd rather come in and see, um, my associate who's a male. And so, um, you know, it, it can go both ways, but there can definitely be a value to having a female chiropractor as long as, um, you know, she's willing to work hard when she comes back. And that's that's what I had to do. But you have to understand that there is a little bit of an, an ebb and flow. Um, you know, when, when a female is really pregnant, she's maybe not taking on as many new patients. She's just trying to get through the day. I remember at the end, I was adjusting people in my bare feet because my feet were so swollen. And it was all I could do just to keep um, adjusting the patients who I did have. And so, um, you know, that is, that is hard to know that maybe she's not going to be taking on as many new patients in that third trimester, but she should try to take on as many as she can handle so that the practice doesn't take a dive. And then during her maternity leave, it can be really helpful to have someone who's there seeing her patients who is taking on new patients during maternity leave for her so that again, as her current patients are going down in their frequency, she's still getting new patients coming in who are coming in more frequent and, you know, her numbers aren't totally, um, you know, dropped by the time she comes back off of maternity leave. So it can be really helpful to have someone there keeping her practice going for her, um, not just keeping it afloat, but helping it to really thrive. 
um, so that, you know, she can just relax at home. And, and I did review progress exams when I was at home and then I would send in, okay, keep this patient, you know, at once a week or whatever it might be. So I did still keep in contact that way. And I, you know, I did email patients and I let them know they could email me if they had concerns about how they were being adjusted when they were gone. Um, but I, I think it can be really helpful for a male doc to understand um, that, you know, the practice could go up and down a little bit, but overall it can be really beneficial to have her there. Yeah, I've often told students that I think, I realize that there's a difficulty in getting a practice started this way, but I've always thought that two docs is a good combination because I don't really want to put them on the same level, but vacation time is almost as important as maternity yeah. time. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> You don't have vacation time you're going to get burned out and that's what i see is a lot of chiropractors do get burned out in mm-hmm. a short period of time. because when it's all on you you get burned out eventually so having a pair to work together um really helps to take the pressure off of any one person and if you got to take a vacation really you can cover for each other and so in that sense i think even having a practice where maybe you had a male and a female doc um mm-hmm. and then pretty you just view it as a really long vacation right but, to me, anything can be, if, you, if, it's a, if it's a finite amount of time and you know when it ends, you can mm-hmm. do almost anything for a finite amount of time. Right. Coming to an end. So then it's like, yeah, if I had to see a ton of patients for six weeks, fine, I can do that. Yep. And as long as I can go on vacation, we come back. Right. <laughs> yes, that would be a great way to do it. <laughs> But the um, the other thing, too, is there are different ways to schedule. You know, I mentioned starting later in the day, you know, especially so maybe just acknowledging that it's going to be better for her to not start at 730 or, or earlier in the morning if she's nursing. And just realize she has been up every two hours that night. It can be helpful for her to start a little bit later in the morning. So maybe offering some flexibility in that way. For me, starting at 9.30 versus 7.30 was night and day difference. And then, um, you know, realizing she's going to need to schedule some pumping breaks when she comes back. And so I had a pumping break every three hours when I came back after maternity leave. And I would schedule it for 30 minutes because... Sometimes it would take a while for the milk to start up if I was just stressed and adjusting patients and running behind. And then if I was running behind, it would give me a little extra leeway. Um, It's helpful to have a lock on the door where she's going to be pumping. I got walked in on by one of the males who works for me while I was pumping because there was no lock on the door. So, you know, those are definitely some things you can do to to help her out. Yeah. And then I don't know if you nec- I don't know if you necessarily would know this um, since you've never been a man. <laughs> so, <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, to patient perceptions, do you feel like there's are there things that you have to do differently than a man might? That's the part I don't know if you would know. Um, <laughs> are there things you might have to do differently because maybe patients perceive? Um, and I don't even want to say just like the size and that kind of thing, but mm-hmm. even like authority. Like, do you really? Yes. Know you're, like sometimes they act like, well, you're just a girl. What do you know? Yeah, no, I've actually talked with other female Gonsta docs about this in the Facebook group that I host. And, um, you know, it, it is important to show that you're confident. And that includes solid eye contact, a solid handshake, um, speaking with authority, you know, not speaking with upspeak where you're, you know, lifting your voice up at the end of every sentence. You know, so I've talked with them about that because you don't sound confident if you're speaking in that way. Um, sometimes it has to do with with the way that you hold your body. So, you know, for instance, if I'm talking with a little old lady, I might, you know, be matching the way that she's sitting, you know, keeping, you know, my body language more closed closed up, you know, so my, my legs are, you know, um, 
crossed at the ankle and my hands are in my lap. And, you know, I just have a totally different way of speaking and a different body language versus this big, strong, tall, loud guy. And in some cases, they have had kind of a condescending attitude. And I've found that I have to just rise up and match it to kind of shut them up a little bit, for lack of better term, so that they can see that I'm not going to be pushed around and that I know what I'm talking about. And then they chill out, you know? So if I speak with authority, there's your problem. This is our game plan. And I even say things like that, you know, and it's not a, it's not a care plan with a guy, it's a game plan. And so we do talk about things differently. I hold my body differently. My voice is different. Everything is different. Actually that game plan, that's a million dollar tip right there. I think. <laughs> um, Cause that really is true. Yeah. You'll get a guy to get behind that. It's like a game plan. Yeah. A game plan. And we're going to talk strategies, you know, <laughs> And I don't use those words when I'm talking with a woman, you know, we're going to, we're going to walk through this together. Um, you know, I'm going to coach you along. It's, it's a totally different way of relating. Which really, that's something I hadn't really even thought of, but really that's probably why this is a good conversation is we're thinking about it from the doctor's side, but the reality is all of us see men and women Yes. And talking to patients. We do need to approach it differently between the two. Yes. Um, just, there's a tendency to just be like, well, I just want to be me and everybody can just <laughs> But right. it really work. Being you might mean that neither one likes you. So That's right. <laughs> to adapt to the patient a little bit. Out, yeah, you're still and you're still being authentic. I mean, still use words that you would use and a tone of voice that you would use. But yeah, you're building rapport with that patient, and it it kind of goes along too. I I you know I've had a couple different coaches through the years, but um, not too many. And sometimes if, if a woman is following a coach, you know, um, if he's a really extroverted, loud, you know, energetic kind of a guy and you're a quieter, more reserved woman, and he's wanting you to script things and say them in exactly the kind of voice that he might use or exactly the same kind of words he might use, it's going to come across as really, really inauthentic when it comes out of your mouth. And so um, I have had to help some some female docs along the way there too and, and say, you know, there is a part that just has to be authentic, you know, so could find a way to connect with the patient from, you know, who they are, but still staying authentic to who you are. There's a real balance that you have to find there. Yeah, I, I think I end up having to do the opposite because when I'm talking to women and they're usually in the cervical chair, I have a chair across from them. I usually sit when I'm talking to them. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. I mean, and when I'm giving an x-ray report, I have that guy sitting in a chair and I'm standing up. <laughs> so that's, that is strategic. <laughs> yeah. I just, for me, it's not necessarily to be an authority, but with men, I know I can stand and there's no issue, but with yeah. women, like already being six, two, it's like, why yeah. are you over me? So it feels intimidating. Talk. Yeah. Principal talk. And it's yeah. like, I'm giving you that. So let me sit and be on your level and let's just talk and. I learned a long time ago that makes for a better conversation in the end because now they're more open. Actually, you can have a conversation, not just yes. telling you what to do and you're going to take it. Right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So that that's, that's great. This, thank you for joining me. This has been uh it's been a great conversation. I think it's stuff that we don't usually talk about. Um, mm -hmm. I was kind of hoping to, uh, to talk about the elephant in the room and yet um, that was great. I mean, that really, <laughs> We need to bring these things up. They are so important. And, and even when you're when you're starting an office, the biggest thing about an office is logistics. Well, if yeah. you and the fact that you're female and you want to have children and you're going to have to nurse, 
those are part of the logistics. And if they you know, are it's going to get you when you don't expect it. Yes. Yes. Yep. And, and an office is such a huge investment of time and money and mm-hmm. emotion and everything else to screw it up over something like that because you just didn't want to think about it is a, a pretty catastrophic mistake. Right. And one of the, one of the things, speaking of that, one of the things that I, I did and I, I often talk with women about too is starting out not by building this huge practice with a really high overhead, um, especially if you're about to start a family and you don't know what that's going to look like. You don't know what's going to come up. You don't know how you're going to feel. You know, your priorities might completely shift when you look into those babies' eyes. And do you really want to um, to risk that, you know, having this huge overhead now? And now you don't have options. Now you have to do practice a certain way. And so when I started, I just rented a room in someone else's clinic and it was a clinic where these two other docs were, they weren't Gonsta docs and they only charged me $600 a month. Um, I moved in with my parents and um, I drove this really not a very nice car. My dad actually took me to the bank and got me a car loan for $3,000, but he basically gave me the car. And then I think I had like a $50 loan payment a month. So I had $3,000 to start with. Um, but it was actually a really neat situation because they had therapy bays that were leading into the adjusting room that they were going to let me use. And I said, Hey, you know, I noticed you have these two rooms over here. Would you consider just giving me those two? Because I thought that would be the perfect theater room. They had a door on each side leading into the adjusting room. And they were like, yeah, sure. That'll work. We'll just do therapies in our our adjusting rooms. And they didn't even charge me more. So I got that too for $600 a month. And then they also, the most amazing thing, they had an x-ray room that was all leaded out, uh, you know, totally ready to go, but no x-ray machine in it. And so I said, so I noticed you have an x-ray room, but no x-ray machine. Would you be open to me putting an x-ray machine in there? And they said, sure. So, so I got a hold of Terry Hart and I, I leased to own an x-ray machine for 550 a month. And then I charged the other docs. They had a PI doc who came in a couple days a week too. I charged the three of those guys to use my x-ray machine. And so that helped me pay uh, a lot of my rent. And so then I had an x-ray machine. I had feeder rooms. I had my adjusting room. And my overhead was that $600 plus the $550. I was my own CA. Um, and I just used my little flip phone. And I you know, answered calls and scheduled people in between patients. So it was very, very low budget to start out with. I didn't even have a high low or a, a slot table, which I should have started with, but I had no money. So I had my little Gonstead set. And then when I got married, my husband gave me a high low as a wedding gift. Um, <laughs> and then I gave myself a goal. I said, I'm going to have to get up to 50 a week. And once I get up to 50 a week, then it's okay for me to get pregnant. And so that motivated me to get up to 50 a week. Cause I really, really wanted to start having babies. And so I got up to 50 a week and then I told myself I'll hire a CA at that point and I'll get pregnant. And so that's what I did. And once I hired a CA, I very quickly went from 50 a week to a hundred a week just cause I had help. I wasn't doing it all on my own. And then I gave myself a goal again. Okay. Once I get to a hundred a week, then I'll build out my own space. And so I did that. And then it wasn't, you know, my little sign hanging in someone else's window. It was my own clinic. And so I just looked more professional. And then I quickly went from 100 a week to 200 a week. And it was a a progression. Um, But that was, you know, not as risky having, you know, a young family and not knowing how everything would turn out. Yeah, actually, that is a beautiful model for how to do it. And I know it's hard. A lot of students don't want to hear it because it's there's an ego in there that says, I want to build this thing. I <laughs> know, you know this perfect, beautiful office right away. And so yeah, 
hold yourself back and be like, yes, one day, but I'm not there yet. Right. Build it strong. Like one of the best advice I ever got was you need to crock pot things, not microwave them. That's good. Yes. Crock pot. And and that don't don't expand until you have to. And you'll build a much stronger business that way. Yes. And we we had goals for our clinic where it is now, too. Um, we really wanted to add another doctor and we really wanted to double our space. And, and the space next to us became available after we added our third doctor. And he didn't have his own adjusting room. So he was using my room and Dr. Megan's room. And we were having to shift our schedules a little bit and kind of inconvenient for me, the way that I had to shift my schedule. And I really wanted to double my space. But, you know, his numbers weren't there yet to support doing that. And I couldn't justify it. And I thought, well, what if somebody else comes and snatches that space up and then I can't expand the clinic? And I just had to trust that if it was supposed to, you know, if we were supposed to expand, it would still be available. And it turned out. And so he got his numbers up. And sure enough, we had to because he couldn't build his practice and I couldn't build my practice anymore the way that we were practicing. And so now we needed the space and we had the numbers to support it. And so sometimes you want things, but you have to hold back until you're actually supposed to take them. Yeah, I, I made a mistake of building, my, from my, when I built my second office, um, going too big too soon. So um, it was a good time to move, and I kind of outgrown my first practice, but the second one was more than twice the size of the first. Mm. And, it, it, and it was um, it was way too nice. It doesn't need to be that nice, but making it that nice is really expensive. So you don't need to build the Taj Mahal, but right. I was I didn't know that, so I built the Taj Mahal and then had to. <laughs> you learn kids. sometimes the hard way, don't we? I wanted to work every day just so I could pay rent. And it's like, <laughs> old car and old house, but man, I got a nice office. Maybe I should just live there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I actually know some people who have done that <laughs> illegally. They couldn't afford to do it any other way. Yeah. You know, there there was a there was a piece of my story that I didn't share yet that maybe I should share, and that is when I had two kids. Now I have three, but when I had two kids and they were really young, I also had a husband who was traveling a ton for his job. And so everything was falling on my shoulders and it was stressful. That's when I was at 200 a week. And I got to the point where I just said, I can't do this anymore. And I actually had my practice appraised. I had it up for sale and I had an interested buyer. And um, I was ready to just homeschool the kids. We actually um, sold our house and we moved 25 minutes away from the clinic thinking I was done. And then I went to a, a different church and I met Dr. Megan. She still had a year left in chiropractic school, but I met her and she was already in Gonstead Club. And, you know, here we were going to this church together and I found I really liked it there. And I said, oh, it's too bad you're not further along. I'd sell my practice to you. You would be perfect. And then I was on my way home from church that night and was just kind of praying in the car. And I knew before I got home that I was supposed to stay in chiropractic and I was supposed to do it with her. And um, it actually took some convincing to get her get her to understand, you know, when the time came that she was supposed to practice with me. But it all worked out really beautifully. But I got home that night and um, and I, I thought, well, I feel like this is what I'm supposed to do, but I, I feel stuck and I want to be sure about, you know, my choices here. And I said, God, can you just give me a dream tonight? And I went to bed that night and I had a dream that I was closing a door. And before I could get that door fully closed, his light just burst the door open and 
Um, that to me was a sign. I immediately woke up from that dream and I felt like I was supposed to stay in chiropractic. And from that day on, my passion for chiropractic had been totally reignited. And I figured out it was better to do it with somebody else. And I actually, the way that I practice now is I see fewer patients, but I actually make more money having an associate. And so I've talked with a lot of women about that is if you do this on your own, you're going to get to the breaking point where it's too stressful to keep doing it on your own while you have young kids. And it's actually helpful to bring someone else in as an associate. You will make more money. You will work fewer hours. You'll be so much happier. Yeah. We could probably talk for another hour just about <laughs> yeah. how your, your energy and your passion and all that stuff, it kind of ebbs and flows over the years. I mean, you've been doing this for a while. You're going to you're going to feel both the peaks and the valleys. Yes. And there is a part where there's physical exhaustion, there's mental exhaustion, there's just kind of where you are in your life. Mm-hmm. There's monotony of when it starts to feel boring because you're seeing a lot mm-hmm. of the same stuff. Then there's the overwhelmed by the challenge patients where I can't seem to get them better. And it's like, it just, there's always another challenge around the corner. And then, and you do get tired over time. Yeah. So it is having another person. I have found that too, that having another person does kind of reawaken something in you. Yes. Feed off of each other's energy. When one is down, you pick the other one up. And going to seminars too has been really big for that. Yes. That's, um, to me, to me I, yeah, seminars are huge. I, I almost wish we could do it more often. <laughs> Not that yes. I could, but, <laughs> um, well, and even um, the last time we did Media of the Minds, Jeannie Taylor said to me, it's a bummer. We fly in, we do these classes and we leave and we don't even get a chance to hang out really. Like I know. <laughs> and then there's these calls and emails afterwards. and <laughs> Yeah. And it's like, you know, we all came from all over the country to meet in one place. And it was like, we hardly even talked. We just- it was all business. I know. That's one of, one of the reasons too, I started the private Facebook group for Gonstead ladies, you know, and, and so we connect with each other so much in that group It's virtual and, you know, virtual is never as good as in person, but on Monday, I go through um, mom and marriage tips with them. So um, Tuesdays, we go over technique. On Wednesdays, we celebrate our wins with each other because I feel like women just have this really strong need to celebrate things. Um, on Thursdays, we share thoughts. Um, and then on Fridays, we go over finances and business tips. And we share uh, videos of our clinics with each other. And having that connection, um, I know, has been helpful for the other women, but it's been really helpful for me, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, uh, it, it def- there's definitely something to having having support. Um, that's actually why I started doing this podcast, really, because mm-hmm. I knew people in their first couple of years who are kind of where I was, and I know that in my first couple of years they would have got a lot better if I'd had some kind of, even though they can't participate in the conversation, just being able to be a fly on the wall and eavesdrop. Yeah. Um, and whether I'm talking to somebody who's been in practice for 50 years giving technique tips, or somebody who's been in practice five years. And they're like, when you first start out, it can be really rough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It really helps just to be be like, I'm not alone. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And also just letting them know that there's a lot of us out there that we've been there, but we're also willing to help. We're not like, I'm superior, you're lame, stay away. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We're willing to help you. Yeah, like we talked about before and just sharing your failures. Hey, I really screwed up. Please learn from me. Don't do this. It can be so valuable. And I love sharing clinical thought. I think that's something that we don't get enough of, you know, when people are teaching. 
we don't get enough of that clinical thought process that goes on in your head. I'm sure you feel the same way. When you're sitting down with a patient, there are like a thousand things going on in your mind as you go through all the steps of your analysis. And that doesn't always get voiced. If you just shadow someone, you're just getting the tip of the iceberg. You're not getting all the thoughts in their head. And so I've tried to to type some of that out or to make videos and sharing that clinical thought with some of the women um, in Gunstead Chiropractic because I think it's so valuable to hear that. Yeah, I've been going through that now. I, um, Dr. Ben works with me and um, and he just graduated from Life West uh, a few months ago. And so I'll be doing stuff and he's like, well, what are you feeling for? What are you thinking about? What made you do that? And I'm like, good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes it's hard to to voice those things. Yeah, it's just a feel. You just <laughs> it made me start really trying to process and go. Well, what am I feeling for? Mm-hmm. What am I trying to do? And do I really know that that's the right way to do it? Maybe I'm making a mistake and I should be doing it a better way. Maybe I'm being sloppy. Like so right. constantly myself you know is this the way it should be done should i be doing it better if it is the right way how do i communicate to you what that is yes Um, i think a lot of times just overwhelming him with so i'm doing like six things simultaneously yes (laughs) but if they don't know all six and they're only doing five of them and they're not getting a result they don't know why they're not getting results. So I got to figure out what the sixth thing is. And that's right. It might be really important. Yeah. Yeah. So it it really got me thinking about those things that I never really thought about before, but it's, it's good for both of us. It really Mm -hmm. is good. It's great. Yeah. So thank you once again for joining me. I really, really appreciate Mm -hmm. it. It's been a great conversation. I think people will learn a lot from it. So it was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. You bet. We'll talk again soon. All right. Bye-bye. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Fellows for joining me today. That was a great conversation and an important one too. I hope you learned a lot from it. If you've been listening to these podcasts and you've been enjoying what you hear, please take a moment to give us a review so we can reach out to more people. As always, I hope you have the best week possible and we'll see you again next time.